Uh, let me lead us in a time of prayer, shall we pray? Lord, we come to you, your children. Help us. Help us to open our ears, our hearts, our lives to you. Help us to understand that we are all your children, Lord, and that you are good. Amen. Well, hello, church. Yay. Uh, um, I just got back from vacation two weeks ago, and I want to tell you something that's going to be very useful in your life. I promise. Maybe. Um, I went to Hawaii with my family, and we went to the beach, and it was great. We went to Oahu, went to the north coast. There were sea turtles there. It was amazing. So most of the time, we spent the time at the beach, and my wife was surfing. It was great. But we decided, you know what, we're going to spend two nights at a resort so we can get the kids in the pool, right? We're not really resort people, but we decided for the kids. (laughs) So I do something... um, Every vacation that is really foolish, I always bring like way too many books, right? I'm dyslexic, so I don't even read that much. <laughs> but I think I'll be a different person when I'm on vacation for some reason. So I always bring way too many bro- books. I'll bring like five books and think to myself, like, when I get to vacation, I'll read these books and I'll be enlightened. Like, the wisdom is in these books. And I'm going to get there on vacation, right? And as my wife always likes to remind me that you, the, the thing with vacation is you bring yourself on vacation. You always find yourself where you're at, right? You don't really change that much on vacation. So I'm on vacation, but I'm getting into a really good book. And I'm sitting by the pool, and it's hitting. I'm like unlocking the secrets of wisdom. And then my daughter comes up to me, my eight-year-old daughter comes up to me and says, Daddy, come, come play in the pool with me. And, you know, my initial reaction is like, go away, child. <laughs> you know, I'm, the wise old sage is reading book. <clears throat> but then I realize I should be a good father. And I get up, and my son's in the pool, and my daughter's in the pool, and there's a lot, a lot of people in the pool. And I want to play the only game you really need to play in a pool, right? I'll give you a hint. I'll give you a one-word hint. Marco. So you know the game. I want to play Marco Polo real bad, but the pool is full. So I make up a game. And this is what I'm giving to you today, a a version of Marco Polo if the pool is crowded, um, to play with children. What I did is I I, uh, grabbed my daughter, I closed my eyes, and I said, point to your brother. And so she'd take my hand and point, and then I'd go after him, and he'd be giggling and swimming, and, you know, I'd be blind, but she could direct me. And then I'd grab both of them. So both my kids, 8 years old, 10 years old, are in my arms, and my eyes are still shut, and I say to them, how do I know you're my children? (laughs) I said, tell me something about me. And they're giggling, and they can't get it out. But eventually, they're, they, this is how we develop the game. Eventually, one of them says, you're 43. <laughs> and then I go, you're my child. And then I grab the other one, and I let that child, the true child, go. And I, t- t- I just give tickle torture to the imposter, right? And then that per- child then becomes the pointer, right? I'm, my, my eyes are closed the whole time. And they're pointing, and they're pointing. And then I grab them again. Who's my real child? You hate mangoes. True. (laughs) 
My daughter said, you like to take naps. <laughs> and I was just having the best time with my kids in the pool. And then my daughter's in one hand, and she points the finger, and I grab my son, and I hear this lady say, not your child, not your child. <laughs> and I open my eyes, and I've just got a, a, a woman <laughs> in a headlock. I'm just holding a woman. And I let go of her, and I'm so embarrassed. I'm so... I love to think of, like... And I don't know, I need to ask my, my daughter this. I haven't asked it, but I don't know if she purposely did it or not. Because that would be really cool. It's like, hey, point at that lady. <laughs> uh, you know what? It was the best thing I did my whole vacation, probably, was put down the book that I thought was going to enlighten me and pick up my children in both arms. And that's what this verse is about. You know, the disciples are trying to keep the children away, but Jesus is saying, no, bring them in. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. This is such good news. You know, in Jesus' time, this was radical. Children weren't allowed to play in the temple. They were to not be heard or seen. And he's saying, no, bring them to me. The kingdom of heaven belongs to our kids. Whew. They belong. And he blesses them. But what I really want to talk to you about today is how they bless us again and again. How God uses children to bless our lives. I'm going to try not to cry when I think of my kids. Um, do you, and I, I want us to first think about our childhood in doing this. Um, if you were raised in the church like I was, um, maybe you can recall what it was like when you first came to Christ as a child, if you did. I certainly do. It was fourth grade. I was a, a latchkey kid through and through, had the rope around my neck and a key. And one day, I just got off the bus and went into a good news Bible study. Have you ever heard of that? Anybody? No? Okay. It's good news. It, it was in a garage, and it was these, these elderly couple, Eunice and Doc Black, and they'd converted their garage into a study for kids, and they gave us brownies. So, you know, that was the draw. And they taught us in felt, felt boards. Anyone taught about the, you know, eternity and the divine through felt? It's very effective. They would have a felt board, and they'd put up these images of disciples and, you know, the woman at the well, and you'd hear all these stories, and eventually they'd come to the time where it's like, okay, here's the, here's the good news. Jesus loves you. Do you want to go to heaven? You know, you're eating brownies. You're having a good time. You're like, sounds like a great deal. Ah, <laughs> uh, there's some bad news. There's also hell, and you don't want to go there, right? So it's like, huh. I'm eating brownies and contemplating heaven and hell and my eternal salvation with felt. <laughs> and I just remember them explaining that God loved me. And they said, you know, if you want to accept Jesus into your heart, raise your hand. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. And then they took me into a back room. 
kind of sounds spooky. If you didn't grow up in the church, I guarantee you this was not nefarious. This was a thing. <laughs> we went into their living room, and I sat down on their couch, and I prayed the, what we traditionally call in the evangelical circles, you know, the sinner's prayer, the prayer of acceptance, that I am a sinner, I, you know, I, but I love Jesus, and I want to, you know, let him into my heart, and I'm kind of devoting my whole life to him. And I remember that so clearly. Next week rolled around, and I'm eating another brownie, and they asked the same question. I raised my hand again. I'm like, yeah, let's do this again. And they take me in the back room, but they're kind of scowling at me, and they're just like, I was like, oh, let's pray it. <laughs> I kept accepting Jesus into my heart every week until my mom got a phone call from uh, the pastor's wife saying, you know, he doesn't have to accept Jesus every time he comes to Bible study. <laughs> But I was that kid. I was really, really excited to accept Jesus into my heart. And I did it with people that were, um, they were an elderly couple that loved me deeply and made space for me in their garage. And such good things. But along the way, I was also taught stuff, you know, that, that hurt. It wasn't true. And if you grew up in the church, you can probably relate to this. And one of the things was just like accepting Christ once and being done with it. That's not my story. I know people that have um, seen Jesus on their deathbed. And they can say, this is the time and this is the place. But honestly, I have had experience after experience of accepting Jesus into my heart. I, I've done it again and again. It's not been a one-time thing. That was something I was taught but honestly, I have been walking with Christ and accepting him ongoing. There's, in my tradition, it was a Baptist tradition. Anybody here raised Baptist? Yeah? Anyone here raised non-denominational and it was Baptist and you didn't know it? <laughs> so, very good chance that that is true. I mean, in my tradition growing up, you were very much taught that you needed to be time-stamped on your salvation as if it was a one-and-done kind of deal. And personally, I did not really experience Christ like that. It's been a journey with Christ. I certainly have known people that have had... I, I have a friend who felt like he was floating one day when he accepted Christ into his heart. I didn't feel that way. I just liked the brownies. But I don't, I don't have a, a time stamp really testimony. I'm telling you a story about one time that I can remember. So I didn't quite fit the mold, but I learned how to fit the mold in church. Um, you know, my true story of accepting Christ, uh, I feel like I'm becoming a gimmick here because I like to sing to you. I'm going to sing to you. There's a song that resonates with my true story. Uh, it's Mark Cohn's Walking in Memphis, right? I'm walking in Memphis, walking with my feet. Ten feet off of Beal. Thank you. Very good, Jared. <laughs> He's got some great I mean, the whole song's got some great lines. Uh, Saw the ghost of Elvis on Union Avenue. Goes on, but, but there's a pretty little thing waiting for the king. <laughs> Down in the jungle room. Yeah. Sorry, I like that one. Uh, but there's this one line in there where he says, now, Muriel plays piano every Friday night at the Hollywood, and they brought me down to see her, 
And they asked me if I would do a little number. And I sang with all my might. She said, tell me, are you a Christian child? And I said, ma'am, I am tonight. Every time I hear that song, I'm like, yeah, that's kind of, that's me. I'm a Christian today. Even as a pastor who's gone through all, all, the, all the hoops to get a collar and all that stuff, I still feel like every day I'd have to choose Jesus. Or I get, I should say, I get to choose Jesus every day. Some days I don't feel like a Christian, if I'm honest with you. I don't believe. That's okay. But I choose it because I live in the divine presence of Christ when I do that. Today, I'm choosing to be a Christian. Today, you can choose to be a Christian. You don't always have to look back at that time when you were a kid and say, yeah, I did it then. You can do that today again. You can keep coming to the cross and keep feeling that love and that presence. I think it's crucial to our faith to live in the now. So one of the things I had to unlearn in the church was, you know, this concept of being time-stamped and always going back to the narrative that I told you earlier as the definitive moment of my life. There's other things I learned in the church, um, and they were hideous. One was chick tracks. Does anyone know what a chick track is? You don't need to. It's like saying, you know, have you been to the Fry Festival? <laughs> you don't need to go to the Fry Festival. It was horrible. <laughs> They're not going to do it again. Chick tracks are horrible, horrible little Christian comic books. I wouldn't even call them Christian. The worst type of Christians will, like, leave them as tips for waiters because they're too cheap to tip. But we had tons of these little comic books, and we'd flip through them all day long, and they were radically homophobic, filled with hate. They were incredibly anti-Catholic, too. That's one of the things. And it was like reading a comic book. The illustrations were really, really good, some of them. And I loved comic books. And I was being taught at a young age who the super villains were in the world. That's messed up. There's a lot of ways that the church messed me up when I was a kid. I learned about heaven, but all of a sudden, hell became bigger and bolder and more populated than heaven was when I first heard about the presence of Christ and being with Christ forever. This was very, very confusing. And it was always confusing when I would go to visit my father. See, my, my mother raised me outside of Portland, and then I would go to New Orleans and visit my father, and my father was Catholic, or he was like a non-practicing Catholic, Jimmy Buffy, Buffett kind of party dad. And I was, I was taught that he was going to hell. And so even as a little child, I remember feeling like I had to pastor him. I had to get him to salvation. I had that weight, that pressure of being some kind of spiritual superman for my father. And no child should have to be a pastor to their father. It doesn't work well, especially when he's chugging Budweiser's and you're telling him about Jesus. That was my experience. But the thing is with kids, 
they will believe anything that you tell them. So I believed these things about heaven and hell. I was a child. My father was a fun guy. He didn't sweat about it, you know, when I'd talk about heaven and hell and trying to get him in and stuff. He, he, he would tell me lies too. Just a little color commentary on my father. When we watch a movie, let's say we're watching 9 to 5, he would always tell me like, yeah, I used to date Dolly Parton. <laughs> and I would believe him. What was most confusing, though, is when we went to the grocery store and we went down the pancake syrup aisle because he'd tell me that he, he dated Aunt Jemima. <laughs> and I, listen, I know Aunt Jemima is a racist uh, image that they've updated over the years, so I hesitate to bring it even up. I could have told you he said Mrs. Buttersworth. But he said, yeah, I used to date Aunt Jemima. And I believed him for years, like really believed him. To this day, when I go down the pancake aisle, I look at the picture of Aunt Jemima, I'm like, wow, how did I believe that for so long? There's things that we have to unlearn as children to embrace the child within us again. Things that we were taught that were so toxic and so wrong, and that's been part of my journey. I had a breakthrough at one point in college that I want to tell you about. Has anyone here, first I want to ask a question. Has anyone here ever been part of a cult? I see you. I see you. This guy, yeah. I'm going to tell a funny cult story. You ready? (laughs) There is no such thing as a funny cult story. (laughs) I got you. No, listen. This happened to me. I was... um, all of this theology that I couldn't sustain anymore, I couldn't keep walking around. This was when I was in college. I was a young adult. I couldn't keep walking around loving Jesus but thinking so many people were going to hell. And I pushed away from the church, but I was desperate for something new. I was desperate for some kind of new fellowship. And this, this guy came up. To, I think he saw me reading my Bible or something. I was kind of just doing you know, faith alone at the time. And he invites me to a big rally that was in Oakland. And, you know, the main speaker gets up and everybody's like, it's a frenzy. You know, I didn't know it was their leader, you know. I'm like, wow, this is a good speaker, huh? And he starts talking about how he used to consider himself a Christian. And, but then, you know, he really got hardcore and committed his life to Jesus. And I was like, wow, there's something more hardcore and then I went, but, but I, I felt this love in the room. And the room, here's the thing that I really was impressed by. The room was completely diverse. It was the most diverse worship service I'd ever been in. And I felt like a rush of energy from that. So many people of, of color worshiping with a white boy. You know, like it was a new experience in worship. And I was really loving it. Um, I started going to their Bible study that was on campus um, and it was, it was energetic, and the worship was great. They didn't use instruments. That was one thing that I was learning, you know. As, but then at one point in the service, they kind of just, like, pulled me aside and said, oh, hey, you're coming with me. And it was, like, indoctrination time. And they put me, they, we, oh, we went outside, and we're sitting on these benches. And I remember that it was, like, a group of guys, and it was time to convert me, Right? 
And they were like, you need to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That stuff you did before. You know, first, of course, they had me talk about my sins. And I was hurting at the time. So I was vulnerable. And then they had me talk about my sins and my struggles and all that stuff. And then they used it against me. This is it's like textbook cult stuff. Um, then they used it against me. And then they tried to convince me that I wasn't in love with Jesus. And that's where I drew the line. I knew I was messed up, but I also knew I loved Jesus. I knew I was accepting Jesus. I knew I was earnest in my love for Jesus. It was the only Bible study that I actually got up from and said, I'm going now. (laughs) And it was very wise of me, just going away from them and telling them, I'm going to go read my Bible alone. It it hurt. It hurt my walk because I, I just stopped trusting people a little bit more. But there was one thing that I remember when I was walking away that I felt good of, about, and I, I honestly felt sorry for them. I thought about the way they were talking about the kingdom of heaven, and it was so pathetic. It was so small. Somehow they had uh, come into some kind of comfort in believing that the lake of fire needed to be so big and heaven needed to be so exclusive. And I was having a spiritual breakthrough, and I was like, nah, I don't think so. There's a lot of moments like that in the Christian walk. You can walk into a Bible study, and let me just tell you, if their version of heaven is like an exclusive members-only club, and the only members that are a part of their version of the kingdom look just like them, talk just like them, believe exactly what they believe, get out of there. Walk away. If they're comfortable with the concept of God's judgment and and eternal torment, get out of there. Walk away. There's things that we have to unlearn. You know, a little while later, I I was married, I was in seminary, and even in seminary, you know, I was like really trying hard to learn everything about Scripture. I have a master's degree. makes me laugh. (laughs) But I was told to go to this one church. They're like, oh, this is the best theology over at this church. And I remember I was there with Liz. We were newly married, and uh, the worship leader sang probably the worst song I've ever heard in my life. It was a direct adaptation of a psalm. But it was a war song, totally inappropriate in a suburban context. <laughs> Everyone was singing it. They'd all learned it. I hadn't learned it. And they were talking about, uh, Lord, help us smite our enemies to the fourth and fifth generation. <laughs> I was just like looking around. This is suburban Orlando. I'm like, what enemies do you have? Where are you going to do all this smiting? <laughs> At a girls' soccer <laughs> game? At your 4th of July barbecue? Like, who is your enemy? This does not make sense, especially when you have Jesus Christ telling us to love our enemies. But it was scriptural, right? Again, we got out of there. We're like, we're done. No, this just doesn't fit. It doesn't work. I can't, all, I can't proof text everything thing of why I don't like this theology, but it doesn't line up with who I believe Jesus Christ is, 
and how he welcomes people and makes enemies friends because we're all God's children. So that was my time with a cult. And sometimes you can kind of find a cultish uh, uh, strain in the suburbs of Orlando. So be careful. You know, ultimately, I think what is happening is people aren't worshiping God. Ultimately, they're worshiping certainty. This idea that you can be certain about what you believe. We're really uncomfortable with mystery. We really are. We want to we deal with our anxiety. We want to get it out of the way. We want to know exactly when we're in that we're in forever, and we, we lack trust, really, in love, the mysterious nature of love, the free gift of love. We want a system, so we build out systematic theology and put God in all these types of boxes because, ultimately, we want to hold certainty. Now, do not get me wrong. Certainty is not a bad thing. Um, I don't know if Ryan Jang is here, but he helped me understand that certainty is a really good thing. I was, um, I was really turning into a hippie for a while and just loving mystery, and I was telling him, nah, it's all mystery. He's like, Paul, I'm an architect. I like certainty. <laughs> and I was like, oh, man, you're right. <laughs> I'm so glad God made you in love with certainty for your occupation of building buildings. It's really, really important. <laughs> if you go to your doctor and their diploma looks like it's written in crown, get out of there. You, <laughs> you want a doctor to be certain when they cut you open, right? When you get on a plane, you want a, that pilot to be very certain about avionics. Certainty can be a really, really good thing. And some people, I think, are just wired to study it and to know it and to live it and to work at it, and that's a good thing. But when we make certainty our God, we miss God entirely. We miss the point of God. As a child, I was taught some things I had to unlearn, and I would venture that you did too if you grew up in the church. I know some of you maybe just walked in today, hopefully. That would be great. But a lot of us are deconstructing some stuff, aren't we? A lot of us are letting go of lies that we were taught. A lot of us need to reconstruct, though. It's not enough just to be a cynic. It's not enough just to blame the church from when you were in fourth grade. That church, for me, isn't even there anymore but I could act like a judgmental critic and think that that church screwed me up and thus, you know, I'll blame them for why I'm not proactive in my walk with God today. J.K. Rollins has this quote she gave at a commencement speech. that She said, there's an expiration date on blaming your parents. (laughs) And I I think that's true. There is. And there's an expiration date on blaming your childhood church. You need to take what was good and hold it and cherish it. And a lot of times it was well-meaning people teaching lies that they had learned too. 
Now, don't get me wrong. Some of you have been so wounded by the church. You've been abused. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is you holding on to a grudge, and it's holding you back from being with Christ today. There is a faith journey ahead of you that is exciting and adventurous and mysterious and lovely that you can be held back because you blame the past. And this church is where children come in, our children. They teach us so much about God. They're some of the wisest little sages that frustrate us. I had a friend, um, he posted something on Facebook. He, it was this really cute picture of him like uh, fishing by a lake with his little three-year-old son. He goes, I'm teaching my son, my three-year-old son patience. That's so wrong. <laughs> you never teach a three-year-old patience. They teach you patience. They have so much to teach us, and it's so valuable for us as we reconstruct our faith together, as we build it back up. You know, there's something awesome about a child. They live in the now, right? If I told my kids, you know, we're going to go to Disneyland next year, they're going to be like, what are we doing today? (laughs) What are we doing now? You know, when my daughter came to me uh, uh, at that pool, I needed to put down my book and pick up my daughter. There's a lot of things that we just need to put down, whether it's our careers, whether it's our own pleasures, and we need to pick up a child. Because when you're with the child, you are doing the present, aren't you? You have to be so present to build Legos with a child. You have to be so present to draw with them. You have to cut out distractions, and you need to honor their divine nature, which is an expression, and it is the presence of Christ right there in front of you. Of course, they can be little maniacs. That's true. But you're being taught something about the divine, even when they're testing you. It's beautiful. It's a gift. They belong. We need to put down so much so we can raise them up together. The other thing about kids is they're radically curious, right? When we pray to the God of certainty, we have no curiosity. We know the answers. We hold on to them with clenched fists, with tribalism, with time-stamped salvation. But children, man, they're just discovering all the time. My daughter, you know, she asked me, like, what is a credit card? (laughs) Okay, I got to think about this. How do I simplify credit really quickly? She asked me, how is a war cold? (laughs) Oh, boy. How do I explain that? She says, what's a half-brother? Why do I have one? And then, you know, my my son's like, yeah, and what's a stepsister? Why we got one of those, too? i got to explain the complexity of life, but give it to them in a way that is, is um, essential. My, one of my favorites was um, this wild curiosity that kids have. Um, and you children here have to promise you don't bring up this story, okay? 
to my son. <laughs> I was hanging out with my friends. We were sitting around, and my, my wife's like flipping through her phone. She, she goes, what? Were you looking up sex on Google Maps? And it's kind, of, it's kind of like, whoa, whoa, what is happening here? And then I'm like, no, that was our son. He was looking up sex for a location. <laughs> I think it's hilarious. Maybe you don't. I know where sex is. And I've taught him about the birds and the bees. But one day, he's got mom's phone. He's like, could it be at a place? <laughs> but that's what children give us. They give us this raw curiosity. And it has, it has juice. It has adrenaline behind it that we need. We need that. Especially as we think about God. We need to be like these children. We need to mimic them. They need to teach us. The last point I want to talk about kids is, is their love for adventure. You know, my son has not seen a, a tree he doesn't want to climb or a rock that he doesn't want to climb. Jared Davis, um, we had a conversation once, and we were talking. You, you said this to me, and I, don't, I won't forget it. You said, man, I, I, I miss driving without GPS. Do you remember that? It was a great metaphor for life and for children, I think. See, like we have GPS now, right? So we get super pissed if they give us one wrong direction and we've completely forgotten maps and how we had to fold them and crap. <laughs> and we forgot what it was like to get lost. I remember when I started driving with my friends and it was like this key to freedom. It was this grand adventure and we used to drive out into the country, and we had no idea where we were going. No idea. That's what children have. That's why you have to watch them. You're like, where are you going? <laughs> you don't know where you're going. But they have that adventure to them. See, GPS is the certainty of faith, right? You don't have to have faith. You have GPS. But adventure, wow, that ignites faith. So let me ask you, when was the last time you had a childlike heart in your faith? When was the last time you didn't know where you were going? You didn't have all the answers, but you were curious. When was the last time that you knew Jesus really loved you like a child? Because deep in your heart, I guarantee you, like everyone else, there's a little boy or a little girl that wants to be loved by Christ, wants to belong, and wants to be blessed. And if we can find that child in us, we will stay forever young in the kingdom, like a child, because that's who we are. We are children of God. Let's pray. Lord, help us to stay forever young Help us to let go of certainty and anxiety and control when we must, Lord, when it's killing us. Help us to unlearn lies, Lord, but be gracious with our past. 
so that we can be present with you today and choose and accept you today that we might be a Christian today. Lord, may we enjoy the adventure of faith and be called into the presence of your Son. Amen.